This week in Revolt Black News, transition is happening. Now the current president can create all the conspiracy theories he wants about the election. But all that does is slow down the transition of power and the implementation of the Lift Every Voice plan. So as Trump's baseless allegations continue, y'all let's go back. Let's back it up to 1990s Vanity Fair article where his first wife alleged that Trump kept Hitler's speeches by his bedside. Now this might sound like a tangent, but trust me it's not, so pay attention here. We have to remember that Hitler was one of the originators of the concept of aligned press, what Trump calls today fake news. Or how about the fact that the Nuremberg Laws of Germany, which were designed to exterminate the Jewish people, well, what were they based on? The Jim Crow Laws of the American South, designed to exterminate us. So listen, the Trump base can keep putting the base in baseless. But in the meantime, what do we do? We stay the course. We don't allow for any bullshit. And we pay attention to these Senate runoffs. And we look to see who prioritizes democracy. So y'all, transition is happening. Brought to you by Beats by Dre. New Beats Flex. Welcome to Revolt Black News. I'm your host, Stephanie K. William. Georgia's been on everybody's mind with these election results because the state went blue for the first time in 28 years. And now the two Senate runoff races will decide exactly who controls Congress. So joining us is somebody who's got a very close hand on all of this. She is the mayor of Atlanta. Welcome to the show, the Honorable Keisha Lance Bottoms. Welcome to the show, Mayor Keisha. It's great to join you. Thank you, dear. So listen, a lot of people have credited President-elect Joe Biden's lead into the primary by basically being resurrected by Congressman Claiborne's endorsement right before the South Carolina primary. But we here at Revolt Black News know that a certain mayor of Atlanta endorsed Biden long before all of that. In fact, it was all the way back in summer of 2019 uh, when you endorsed Joe Biden. And you know, my good sore, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris was still running for the presidency at that time. But tell us, Mayor Keisha, what was it about Joe Biden that made you support him so early? Well, what I said last summer was we know Joe. And I knew that he was the one um, who could beat Donald Trump. I also knew that he had a relationship with the African-American community. And it was a very strong relationship. It wasn't lost on me that he stood beside and behind. Barack Obama. And in this year, when you have someone as strong as Donald Trump, who's going to be on the ticket, you have to have someone who's equally strong, someone who our communities knew across the board. And, and thankfully, uh, the, the voters validated what, what I believed last summer. But I, I said it repeatedly that the South was going to have something to say. And we said it in the primary. And the fact that Georgia's blue says it even um, louder than I could have ever screamed during the course of the primary and the caucuses. Well, listen, Mayor, you should buy yourself a lottery ticket because clearly you know how to pick a winner, my dear. Uh, with Biden winning Georgia for the Democrats for the first time since Bill Clinton did so back in 1992, some 28 years ago, uh, the energy in Georgia is just electric. It's on a different level, clearly, than it has been in previous years. How much of that, Mayor Keisha, do you credit to the likes of Stacey Abrams and, um, you know, the heartbreaking, I'm not going to call it a defeat, but just the, the heartbreaking result as to what happened in her governor's race and other organizations to help get out the vote in Georgia? 
Yeah, and it's been a combination of such hard work. Certainly with Stacey's race being so close, voters had an appreciation for how close races can be. They had it went from there. People uh, may not re remember, but my race was an extremely close race, almost 100,000 votes, 832 vote difference. Uh, with the governor's race that Stacey was a part of, I believe it's around 55,000 votes. So I think that was definitely on people's minds. And then you had all of the organizations, the Divine Nine, you had the NAACP, the Urban League, uh, Black Voters Matter. I mean, you go down the list, you had so many people on the ground doing the hard work. And then on top of that, we had motor voter registration in Georgia. So when you move to Georgia or when you apply for a driver's license, you are automatically registered to vote. This is something that's come online in the past couple of years. So we have a state that's trending, more diverse, trending younger. You've got 18-year-olds like my son who was able to register to vote for the first time when he got his driver's license. All of that uh, created this perfect storm. And on top of that, most importantly, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris believed that they could win the state of Georgia. And they came here and sent Barack Obama and they campaigned here, which is something we're not accustomed to to seeing with presidential candidates. Okay, so now let's talk about these Senate runoffs. There are two. So we are going to start with the incumbent who was appointed by Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, Kelly Loeffler, and her Democrat appointed, Reverend Raphael Warnock, and he's, I believe, uh, pastor at Ebenezer Baptist. What is the Black community stand to gain from one of these candidates and potentially lose from the other? Well, with Reverend Warnock, you have somebody who's been very entrenched in our community, very entrenched in issues that are, are prevalent in the African-American community, especially issues around social justice and criminal justice reform. And he is a voice that can reflect who we are um, as a state, because we have a very diverse state and all that entails. And so I, I am... Uh, personally supporting him, I have been very disappointed with Kelly Leffler. Uh, she was a businesswoman who many of us across Atlanta worked with in the past, and, and many of us don't recognize this person who now wants to represent the state of Georgia. So I'm supporting Raphael Warnock in addition to John Ossoff, who is in a race against David Perdue. This is an opportunity that can happen often that you have an opportunity to elect two senators. Um, this is something I don't think has happened in my lifetime. And it's an opportunity for us to change the balance of power in the Senate. But it won't happen if people don't show up and vote. We can talk about it. Right. But there were a lot of people who set out the November election. So we've got to make sure that people show up, even if you didn't vote in November. Indeed. Now, I want to ask you this, uh, Madam Mayor, and that is we know that midterm or special elections do tend to have lower voter turnout than general elections. But this is, a, as you say, this is a historic runoff, something that we haven't seen in my lifetime. So would you all like the state of Georgia visitors from neighboring states to come and knock on doors and do that retail politics or in the age of COVID? Is that not welcome? Tell tell me and my viewing audience, what you would like from your, your neighbors outside of the state of Georgia? Well, what we know is this. We know that we ran a virtual campaign. Democrats were very responsible in running a virtual campaign, but it did cost us. So I think that mm. people really have to assess their personal 
safety, their personal health, and determine what's mm. safest for them to do. If you can just make phone calls, if you can send out text messages, if you can blast something on social media, everything that can be done will certainly help. We, we need volunteers in this state um, because this election is important, not just us in Georgia, but to the country as a whole. Indeed. And on that note, what is your final message, your closing argument, uh, Mayor Keisha, to Georgia residents that feel that the work is done because Georgia went blue for Joe Biden? What's your closing remarks to that, that voter that might be on the fence and feels like enough is enough? Just remember the words of John Lewis. In his parting essay to us, he reminded us that the voter is the most powerful weapon that we have. And if we don't use it, we could lose it. And elections have consequences. Uh, the election in Georgia had consequences for us as we dealt with COVID and we dealt with a governor who didn't want me to institute a mask mandate. Mm. Elections have consequences in the way that it's impacted four years under Donald Trump and what it's done to our country and to our communities. Elections matter and this one matters in the same way the work is not done. It was great that we flipped blue for Joe Biden, but to have the opportunity to have a Senate to support and ratify his work and not make it difficult, not make it an uphill battle in the way that they did for Barack Obama is something that doesn't happen often and the power is in our hands. We'll leave it right there, Mayor. Perfectly said. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, my dear, thank you so much for your leadership um, and certainly for your time having this conversation. Uh, we cannot stress the importance enough of our entire nation supporting you and your leadership in Georgia around these historic Senate runoffs. We want to wish you all the best. Keep Atlanta safe. And you are making us very proud. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we've got today's headlines. We've got more Revolt Black News after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. Here are today's headlines. Lil Wayne has been charged in the Southern District of Miami for possession of a firearm and ammunition by a convicted felon. Now, Dwayne was also in the news recently for endorsing President Trump in the election, making his lawyer's statement on the weapons charge even more interesting because the argument applied a recent appellate dissenting opinion from Trump-appointed Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Now, to paraphrase, point made by Wayne's attorney was simply this. This was made from Justice Barrett's opinion that a convicted felon should not be disqualified from possessing a firearm when there's no reason to believe he or she is a dangerous person nor has intent to use the weapons. She went on to say to do so would be a violation of the Second Amendment. Now, as usual, y'all, we're going to stay on this story as it develops. But if convicted on these federal charges, Lil Wayne could spend up to 10 years in prison. Now, in COVID news, sadly, pediatric cases of coronavirus in the U.S. have passed the 1 million mark. Last week alone, over 100,000 COVID cases in children were reported, making it the largest increase in pediatric cases of the entire pandemic. And on the heels of Moderna announcing that its vaccine has a 95% effective rate, Pfizer now reports that its vaccine is 95% effective as well, with no serious side effects. Now, sources say the FDA will review both vaccines in mid-December. President Trump has fired the Department of Homeland Security cybersecurity chief, Christopher Krebs, for saying that November 3rd's election was the most secure election in American history. Now, after learning of the news of his firing, Krebs tweeted this, Honored to serve. We did it right. Defend today. 
Secure tomorrow. Hashtag protect 2020. And as Trump and the GOP continue their attempts to block vote certifications, a Michigan election board has certified its largest county, Wayne County, which Biden has won by over 320,000 votes. Now, this came after the county's board of canvassers were deadlocked. That was until the ally on the board blasted the two Republicans for refusing to certify the ballots. Let's watch. I'm also not worried about any of your, oh, things are, are bad so we can't certify arguments because that's just ridiculous. Monica Palmer and William Hartman will forever be known in southeastern Michigan as two racists who did something so unprecedented that they disenfranchised hundreds of thousands of black voters in the city of Detroit because they were ordered to. And in international news, the Tigray People's Liberation Front and the Federal Army of Ethiopia continue fighting over the Tigray region of the country. The violence has reportedly ensued ever since Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed said the TPLF attacked an army base in the north earlier this month, which has led to almost 26,000 Ethiopians fleeing to the Sudan. Now, just earlier today, the Ethiopian army alleged that the World Health Organization is backing the Tigray's forces with arms and diplomatic support. In Uganda, protest and violence has erupted over the arrest of presidential candidate Bobby Wine for violating COVID campaign restrictions. Let's watch. That message was clear as they defaced images of longtime leader Yoweri Museveni. Security forces responded by firing tear gas and arresting dozens of demonstrators. But it's this moment that brought them onto the streets. About 100 kilometres away, the pop singer-turned-politician Bobby Wine was campaigning in Lurka when he was arrested and bundled into a police van. Security forces cited repeated violations of COVID-19 restrictions. Now, since being detained, a spokesman for Wine's political party has said this, quote, we have not been allowed to see him and we don't know what's happening, end quote. Now, as the unrest continues in the capital city of Kampala, reports say at least seven people have died and at least 45 have been injured. And in much more positive news, Cedric Richmond, who served as the chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus from 2017 to 2019, will join the Biden administration in a senior advisor role to the president-elect. Now, Richmond previously held a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives, representing Louisiana's 2nd Congressional District. Cedric was also a mentor of mine in law school. Congratulations to the congressman. History was made earlier this week when the SpaceX Falcon 9 sent four astronauts to the International Space Station in the first fully operational mission. The history was also made as one of the astronauts, Victor Glover, became the first black astronaut to go on any extended stay at the ISS. Congrats to Glover and all of those involved. And on to some NBA news. OKC has agreed to send Chris Paul to the Phoenix Suns. Now in exchange for the 10-time All-Star and two-time Olympic gold medalist, OKC will receive a whole lot. Ricky Rubio, Kelly Oubre, Ty Jerome, Jalen LeCue, and a 2022 first-round draft pick. Now from the big trade to the big rumors. Reports are saying that James Harden and Russell Westbrook both want out of Houston due to the Rockets' owner's support of President Trump. Now, with word of Harden looking for a new team, both the 76ers and the Nets are reportedly aiming to land the eight-time All-Star. A trade to the Nets would, of course, reunite James Harden with his former teammate from OKC, Kevin Durant. Personally, I love to see it. 
Now, last night was also the NBA draft. The Timberwolves had the number one pick and took Anthony Edwards, the freshman guard from Georgia. With the number two pick, the Warriors drafted James Wiseman out of Memphis and in the number three slot, the Charlotte Hornets selected the highly anticipated LaMelo Ball, who famously opted to play internationally in both Lithuania and Australia. Congrats to all. All right, that's it for today's headlines. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Dr. Chris T. Purnell and Dr. Bernard Ashby join us for a very important and candid conversation about COVID-19. We've got much more Revolt Black News after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. Now we've covered a lot today, but now it's time to bring in the medical experts because here at Revolt Black News, we both trust and believe in the science. We've got some fantastic physicians here to break down exactly where we are currently in this pandemic and of course the impending vaccines. Joining me, she's a public health physician and fellow at the American College of Preventative Medicine, Dr. Chris T. Purnell. Also with us, vascular cardiologist and professor, Dr. Bernard Ashby. Doctors, thank you both and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Dr. Ashby, I'll start with you. Now, all the way back in March, which for many of us was kind of the beginning of our recollection of this pandemic, you tweeted this. Our country is at war with COVID-19 and we don't even realize that we're losing. Sadly, the people at the bottom of society will once again suffer the most casualties. Now, here we are some eight months later. Almost 11.5 million cases of COVID-19 and nearly 250,000 deaths. Now, while this isn't the kind of thing anybody would celebrate being right about, uh, it is what it is. You were accurate. How would you know so soon? Unfortunately, I was correct and I did not want to be. But anyone that knows the U.S. healthcare system would have seen this coming a mile away. We like to call these things healthcare disparities. I think that's a sanitized term. And basically really is structural racism. And because black folks have lack access to care, because uh, black folks get uh, inferior treatment when it comes to quality, and uh, Mm -hmm. because of a number of reasons, um, we were a total setup to die at a higher clip from this. Um, One of the biggest reasons why there was such a disproportionate uh, number of deaths was because a lot of folks live in urban centers. They go to county hospitals. Right. Those hospitals are, are right. low in resources, low, low in staff, and the quality of care a lot of times is just not there. And what you saw was when folks got sick, a lot of them presented late. And once they got there, mm-hmm. the staff was overwhelmed, and folks were just dying in the hallways, dying in their rooms, and with no close monitoring whatsoever. And, you know, it's sad. And, and I think one thing that COVID has done was expose the U.S. healthcare system for what it is, uh, another racist mm-hmm. institution. Dr. Purnell, I want to ask you this. Last week, you know, kind of the globe, and especially here in America, kind of went crazy with all the reports of Pfizer's trials that are showing they report 90% effective rate. This week, we're hearing there's another potential vaccine on the way. Moderna's vaccine is uh, reported at 95% effective Um Doctor, know that our hearts are with you here at Revolt Black News. We know deeply, uh, tragically, your father lost his battle with COVID. Uh, but we are so grateful to you, Dr. Purnell, that you are both a physician with and also a volunteer with the Moderna trials. Why was it important for you to volunteer with these trials? And what do Black folks need to know about these particular vaccines? Thanks for your condolences. Let me start where my colleague left off. 
Um, and I frame this conversation as a collision of two pandemics. If I'm a public health physician, I live in this world. Mm-hmm. And that fast pandemic is the coronavirus pandemic, which exploded onto the globe in January. Um, peaked, I would say, in the United States in the spring, and it's at least in some aspects of the United States. And now we're seeing total devastation across the, the country. But there's this other slow pandemic, this systemic racism. And racism is a pre-existing condition for why coronavirus mm. has been so detrimental and devastating. Hence why this black woman, this black public health physician, felt that it was imperative for me to be a part of the solution. My father died in a hospital miles away from me. I drove from my hospital mm. to the hospital where my father was. And by so the time I got to the parking garage, I got the phone call that my father had just died. Right. Mm. So that's why I wanted right. to volunteer for a coronavirus uh, coronavirus vaccine trial. I can tell you that most people have respected it. And the last thing I'll say about it is I still get questions. I got a question on Twitter about this this morning. Are you aware of Tuskegee? Of course, I'm aware of Tuskegee. I, I was raised mm. by a man who came up in the Jim Crow South, um, a black power. Um, father. And so, of course, I'm aware of Tuskegee. I'm aware of Henrietta Lack. I'm aware of Mississippi Appendectin. Mm-hmm. I'm aware of enslaved Black women who subjected to surgeries without anesthesia or their consent. But I knew yeah. this opportunity was being done according to ethical guidelines, that informed consent was upheld, and that the other flip side of the coin of the health inequity is that my people don't get access or don't participate in this type of opportunity at the levels that we need in order to say that something is truly efficacious across a representative population. So that's why I did it. Well, I want to start with thank you for doing it. Uh, And the reason I say that personally is I beat my battle with COVID-19 in April and thank God it wasn't um, as severe as many others. I never had respiratory problems, but I couldn't taste or smell for a good eight weeks. And uh, I still have residual neck and back trauma and, and fatigue. It's, you know, but to your point, doctor, first of all, let me just say plainly, you know, everybody and their mama think they went to medical school because they have a, a iPhone and a Google account. And it's very, very traumatic and devastating for our community in particular. Yes, we has, have a historic reason for our skepticism around certain aspects of medicine. Yeah, of course we know this, but we also have a a right to make choices that are advantageous to us both personally and as a collective. So doctor, from me to you, thank you deeply for that choice. When we talk about the timelines of the particular vaccines that are making the news now, many folks are saying that they won't be really accessible to, to the masses until maybe April, 2021. Uh, what's your take on that? And should the public, Black America in particular, trust these vaccines? So in terms of the, the timeline, currently, now that these companies have their preliminary data, uh, which establishes efficacy, uh, they're now going to move to the next phase, which is applying for emergency use authorization. The EU, EUA or emergency use authorization should be approved probably in early December. Now, That doesn't mean that the rest of the public is going to have access to the vaccine. They're only going to distribute it to priority populations. Now, those are, what do I mean by that? I mean, those who are on the front line, so healthcare workers, um, also those who are extremely vulnerable. So folks who we know that they have all the risk factors for poor outcomes with the COVID-19 disease, and therefore they're going to be prioritized. And there is a huge issue there because... Uh, first of all, 
black folks, they don't trust the vaccine at all. Okay. And so we have to get, mm. get across a couple of barriers. One is the inherent distrust in, in the vaccines. And, um, you know, mm. if we have time about the MR, mRNA technology, which is going to pretty much revolutionize medicine. So it's not uh, just going to be used in vaccine technology, but it's also going to be used in things like cure, in cancer treatment. What's going to happen is that folks who are fluent, folks who are comfortable with the healthcare system because they right. haven't moved to the issues that black folks have run into, they're going to get the vaccine right. and they're going to survive and live just fine. But my patients with cardiovascular disease, patients with cancer, patients with, with diabetes, hypertension, those folks will not get access to the vaccine and they will unfortunately uh, fa uh, face the consequences. Well, I want to say this before we move on to the final question here, and that is what I'm hearing both of you esteemed medical professionals tell me is that it is in the interest, the best interest of black America to avail ourselves to the science and to these vaccines as they become both verified and available. Is that is that is that accurate? Yes, yes. ma'am. Okay, thank you. That's, I just wanted to be clear because it's so much disinformation. So this is exactly the kind of information our people and our community needs to hear. So much to unpack. So listen, we're going to pick this conversation up a bit later in the show. But up next, Sibley Skulls joins for Black Excellence in Entertainment. We've got much more Revolt Black News after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. Now it's time to get into this week's Black Excellence in Entertainment, one of my favorite segments. Joining us this week, extremely special guest. She's an Access Hollywood correspondent. She co-hosts Access Hollywood Weekend. She's also an Emmy nominee, and she's my dear friend. Welcome to the show, Sibley Scholes. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Finally, we get to do this. We get to do this. I, I said before the show, we, we, we shout out to Michael Jackson. It's black, it's white, it's a love thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I love it. All right, Sib. So this Sunday, HBO is going to premiere Between the World and Me, of course, based on Ta-Nehisi Coates' best-selling book and the Apollo Theater stage production of the same name. Now, the small screen reimagination will center on Coates' letter to his 15-year-old son, about living in a country that does not love him back. Listen, some huge names are attached. It will have performances from Oprah Winfrey, Felicia Rashad, and many other huge names like Angela Bassett. So uh, shout out to that. Sibley, are we here for it? I'm absolutely here for it. And uh, to even just dive deeper in this, first of all, the interview that he just did on Trevor Noah is amazing. So if anyone wants more details mm. on this, check that out it was so good i'm excited to see something that's been written for someone's son that speaks volumes to everyone mm. else and to these strong human beings to voice those stories it's going to be amazing to hear it's going to be amazing and you know uh during the summer sib you know a lot of white folks and other ally groups wanted to know what should i be reading what should i be watching and Tanahishi Coates' book was on many of those lists. So now we get to add this small screen version and reimagination to continue the work. You know, the work never stops. Okay, so in more TV news, Hollywood powerhouse Bloomhouse TV has tapped Anthony Sparks for a first look deal. Now, Sparks currently serves as showrunner on Ava DuVernay's Queen Sugar, but will now add some development to his workload as he and Bloomhouse partner on a series called Choir, which will be based on the Detroit Youth Choir. What do we think about this collaboration, Sib? 
I'm excited to see this. We're stepping away from the thriller and the horror that Blumhouse really is known for. And obviously, Ava DuVernay is the queen behind the camera. She knows what she's doing behind the lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great to see this choir because they came from America's Got Talent back last year. And I watched them on stage. So it's exciting to see this being developed. Absolutely. I'm totally here for it as well. A very, um, I think, unique combination in the space. I love it. So listen, Emmy-winning actor Keegan-Michael Key has signed on for a 10-episode podcast series with Audible called The History of Sketch Comedy. Now, Key will both write and perform every single episode. And it'll range from acting troops in Europe back in the 1500s to the 20th century variety television shows, all the way up to modern-day formal sketch and improv training troops in Chicago. Now, the series premieres in late January 2021. Now, I don't know about you, Sid, but I was an old-school uh, Key & Peele fan, and I actually had the privilege back when I was living in L.A. over 10 years ago to see Key and Jordan Peele uh, perform at one of the improv schools. I want to say, I don't know if it was Groundlings or maybe Upright Citizens Brigade, but, I mean, these are truly kings of improv, so I'm excited. How about you? Okay, well, I just have to say I'm jealous because I have not seen them live. Um, I'm definitely, <laughs> so definitely about this. I love that it's in podcast form. Something about uh, Keegan-Michael Key's voice, I'm like, I'm here for it. I'm ready for it. And I love just knowing the history and the behind the scenes of sketch comedy because it's political. It's, uh, you know, has to do with so much in the history of everyone's culture. And the fact that he and his wife are kind of co-writing this together makes it even more special. Mm-hmm. He's, he's busy. That's a busy, talented brother, indeed. And, you know, I haven't want to toot my own horn here, Sid, but your girl might have been in an in a improv troupe in high school. Just, you know, don't sleep on the collective skill set. Now, over to music. We've got some very good news with Meg Thee Stallion's long-awaited debut album finally dropping, and it is entitled Good News. We know Meg is coming off of a massive year. Uh, right now, Sid, you know, she's on the cover of GQ Mag. As the rapper of the year, she had massive hit singles with Savage and WAP. Finally, we are getting her freshman album. What do we think? Okay, she just dropped the track list as well. Ebony, I'm so excited. We got the City Girls on there, SZA, Beyonce, of course, which we've heard that track already. I think watching her performances time after time and seeing what she's done, you almost feel like the album was already here, but now it's even more exciting because now this is the whole pack. I love the layout that she's doing and she's flipping and saying, here's the good news. Here's the good news. Yeah, good news from Meg Drops. Tomorrow, actually. So we'll all be sure to check that out. Sib, thank you so much, sis, for helping us out with this week's Black Excellence and Entertainment. We appreciate you for stopping by. Now, as we mentioned earlier in this conversation, this Saturday is the premiere of Tanahisi Coates' Between the World and Me. Now, joining now to give us more insight into the project is the director, Camilla Forbes. Camilla, thanks for joining. Hi everyone, I'm Camila Forbes. I'm here to talk about the upcoming premiere of Between the World and Me. So I am the uh, director and executive producer of uh, HBO's Between the World and Me. So the personal in the story for me is, um, one, I think the subject matter just hit me as a black woman in America. This was so much of what I felt intrinsically, uh, but never had the language for. And he was able to put into words um, 
things I, I, I was never able to articulate. So it, it really affected sort of my personal life and journey, but also personally, um, I know Tanahasi. We went to college together. Um, his wife is one of my closest friends uh, since middle school. We grew up together. We went to Howard. We all went to Howard together. Um, and this, the book is a letter to his son, um, who I'm also very close to. Uh, he's my godson. And so I um, had a lot of sort of personal stake in the book. Um, the book centered around Prince Carmen Jones, who was a classmate of ours at Howard University. Um, and, you know, that he was the major impetus in, in Tanahasi wanting to tell the story of Prince and unfortunately in his untimely death by the hands of Prince George's County Police. I think everyone should tune in because this is a story, um, this is meant to be a love letter to our people, to celebrate our beauty, our resiliency, um, um, to also reckon with this idea, to also, you know, I, there are very few places where we're able to really understand and, and not understand, but also have a conversation about our pain, um, about our sense of mourn, um, of what has happened in this country and how we got here, while in the same breath also celebrate our joy. Um, this film attempts to do that. And what I mean by very few places, I mean, we do it through our music. We actually um, do it through our moments of communion. So this is actually just additive to uh, those other modalities of survival um, that we've always participated in as a people. Um, but this is this is true. This is a, a, a truly a moment to reckon, a truly moment to celebrate. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And thank you, Revolt, for amplifying this work on your platform. Um, I'm such a fan of all that you all do. Um, and uh, thank you for taking the time to talk about Between the World and Me. The work premieres November 21st on HBO at 8 p.m. All right, again, thank you so much, Camilla. We cannot wait for the premiere this Saturday. All right, we have more commercials on the way, and then we're picking back up the conversation with Dr. Chris T. Purnell and Dr. Bernard Ashby about COVID and everything our people need to know about it. We've got more Revolt Black News after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. So now we're going to pick things back up with Dr. Purnell and Dr. Ashby and all things COVID-19 that the culture needs to know. So Dr. Ashby, you've been very vocal about the risk uh, that we are facing as a black community, particularly in some of the rural areas, some Southern areas, communities where uh, the populace is relying upon, you know, what we know as county hospitals. Uh, and mm -hmm. also know, of course, Dr. Pinnell, you yourself are also um, a public uh, health official. So listen, how do we deal with this? Where can patients be redirected so that we're not running up against the same problems we had when we had the springtime peak, right? Where not only were people getting sick, um, I'll start with you, Dr. Ashby, and then you, Dr. Pinnell, uh, people were getting sick and then they were no beds, essentially, right? For them to be able to get the treatments, the, uh, whether it was ventilators or what have you. How does the South and other rural areas deal with the shortage around hospitalization? So another great question. And, and we saw this play out during the onset of the pandemic. In New York City, for example, uh, Governor Cuomo did a lot of good things, okay? But one of the things that he failed at was redirecting okay. patients at, to different hospitals that, that had the capacity to, to, to handle patients. And what, what occurred exactly was right. you saw, you saw in, in, at Elmhurst in, in Queens, and you saw in Brooklyn, 
where folks were going to certain hospitals and those hospitals were, were getting overwhelmed. Yet you had hospitals in Manhattan that, that were just there twiddling their thumbs. And mm-hmm. this was a pre-existing issue prior to the pandemic because those hospitals in those areas, they don't want patients without insurance. They don't want patients with Medicaid. Right. They don't want patients with the, the insurance that, that doesn't pay well. And so they deliberately uh, have a network in place where ambulances are prevented from going to a different mm. hospital. Not, they don't even have the option for, if the patient is, is, is sick and they know that, that a county hospital is over, overwhelmed, you're, you're still going to take them there. And that's because the, they have contracts in place that prevent this. And this is an ongoing issue. And that, that that's part of the inferior care that we receive. And, and what's sickening to me is that we're dealing with another surge and nobody has addressed that. Nobody gives a damn about it. And what's going to happen is that people are going to overwhelm these, these local community rural hospitals, these county hospitals, and you're going to have hospitals miles up the road twiddling their thumbs while people are dying at, at, at these local hospitals. It's happening in El Paso right now. I'm sure people have seen the, the inmates uh, offloading these bodies in, in, into these, um, these uh, mobile morgues. And, and, and wow. what, what's, what's crazy about it is, is in El Paso, you can go miles up the road and find another hospital that, that is not nearly at capacity. And why, why, are, why are these patients not going to those hospitals? Why? Because it's about money and it's about, you know, about, about a racist-ass system. And, and, it's up. and they need to deal with that shit right the now because people are going to die. You know, but one thing I want you to work on, Dr. Ashby, is um, figuring out where you fall on the issues. I want you to work on that. You're a little unclear. (laughs) Go ahead, Dr. Pradell. What is the health equity solution for this problem? Where is racism operating? Dr. Cameron Jones, she is um, like a mentor for me. She's a pantheon of public Mm. health president of APHA, says if you practice medicine one from an age historical perspective, then the losers will continue to lose and the winners will continue to win. Right. And two, you always have to ask, how is racism operating here? And you have to be prepared for the answer. It is my hope that enough of us, we have tipping point leadership of critical mass to say this is how racism is operating. And this is how we undo, undig and uproot racism so that people can ultimately achieve health and wholeness. One thing I know about our, our dear country, follow the money. You want it, You got a question that doesn't make sense? Follow money okay it will always tell you exactly what you need to know it is often the political leadership and where their monies and donors come from don't get me on my political Mm -hmm. soapbox but you want to know what kind of political leader you have it's very much democrat and republican Mm -hmm. right and everything Mm -hmm. in between look Mm -hmm. look at exactly where your candidates your mayors your city councilmen and women are getting their donations from because it will tell you where their interests lie the holidays are fast approaching. We got Thanksgiving in a week. We have the Christmas holidays soon after. Uh, I'll start with you, Dr. Purnell, then you, Dr. Ashby. What is your final word to our people as the holiday season approaches? How do we how do we live to tell about it? Don't mix households. Uh, I just had this conversation at church um, the other day. I had this conversation with my family. Don't mix, mix households. Um, it's not worth it. Uh, you should stay within your bubble. And so families across multiple ad- addresses or residencies should not be getting together. Here in New Jersey, the governor is trying to exert pressure and saying, you know, limit your, your in-house dwellings to um, 
less than Caucasian people. I make it more simple. Don't mix households. I'm not mixing households for for Thanksgiving, and it's just what we need to do in order for us to stay safe because we have so many people who are asymptomatic and have the disease and don't know that they mm-hmm. have it, exposing mm-hmm. it and contributing to the spread. We have multi-generational dwellings where a young person mm-hmm. will have it yes. well, but the older, more vulnerable person in the household does not. So don't mix households. I can't, can't make it plainer than that. What people need to understand is that our behaviors are very much tied to how this virus is spread. And so, hmm. you know, if you share air with someone that's how folks get it. Okay, that's why bars and restaurants and and family gatherings are really the, the sources of of spread of this virus. And so you have to be be cognizant of that um, because when you're in indoors, you're in a house. Uh, Dr. Purnell mentioned mm-hmm. there's a lot of asymptomatic spread of this virus. Over fifty, well, about fifty percent of folks who get the virus really have no to mild symptoms at all, and so they won't even know. Just assume that you have the virus. Don't don't say you know what I feel good. I, I'm good. Just assume that you have the virus and, and and practice safe measures when you're with family. And if you again if you have anybody vulnerable, uh, I would suggest just don't even don't even uh, do it unless you're outside and you're distant because mm-hmm. your, your your family members will die. They will get critically ill. Mm-hmm. And even if they, they don't die, they're going to have long term issues with the virus. If you act like it's all good and you just live your life normally, uh, you're going to reap the consequences. And I know way too many people who have done that and, and, and they have dealt with the consequences and it's sad and it's tragic. Don't mix households for Thanksgiving and Christmas. If you have to do something, uh, do it outside. If you have to be indoors, keep your windows and things open for as much ventilation, social distance, and wear your mask. Dr. Cornell, Dr. Ashby, thank you both so much for your courage. Uh, and your life-saving work. You are indeed heroes in these times. Thank you so much. And with COVID on our minds, we're all aware of the rough year that 2020's been. From our community hit the hardest in this pandemic to the ongoing police brutality, it would be an understatement to say that this year was full of L's. But that said, there were also a good amount of bright spots that were able to salvage some W's. And listen, we all deserve to celebrate those achievements. The WNBA and NBA were huge W's. Both bubbles operated in extremely safe environments. They exhibited fierce competition that crowned champions, and they used their platforms on court to protest all that happened off the court. The earth got a big W with so much of the world adhering to social distancing. Lockdowns and lack of travel all contributed to less pollution and lower carbon emissions. Another W was our access to information and art. From universities offering more webinars to the public, to museums amping up their virtual reality tours, to D-Nice and all those fabulous versus battles. There were times on IG where our community couldn't have felt any closer, even if we were together in person. Banking got an enormous W, with the top black banks overwhelmed and backlogged with requests for new accounts. And a special shout out to Killer Mike, who co-created Greenwood, a digital bank specializing in financing opportunities for Black and Latinx entrepreneurs, set to launch in January 2021. Renowned actor and activist Jesse Williams recently came on board as a new investment partner, showing the importance of how building a better Black dollar puts our neighborhoods and culture on a path for stability 
and ownership. And last but never least, the election. Because black folks showed up and showed out and saved this country from itself yet again. Our ballots across Detroit, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, and Atlanta in particular impacted the results as we knew they would. We showed out decisively in the largest election of our country's history, just going to show that black votes matter because black lives matter. So let's never forget, wherever there's an L, there's always a W. All right, y'all, it might be hard to believe, but this was actually our 30th episode of Revolt Black News. Together, we've accomplished a lot in our time so far. We're extremely proud of the work we've done, particularly under the circumstances of this pandemic. But listen, it's only fitting that we take a break and step away from this for the holiday because our information means nothing if you don't do anything with it. So listen, we're going to leave this now in your hands and under your watch to do exactly what Reese Colbert said last week on the show, to complete the work. So here's how we complete the work. I want you to go to georgiastandup.org and on their site, you will see videos, forms, volunteer opportunities about everything possible that you can do to help in this Georgia Senate runoff. They even have a list of 20 ways you can help from wherever you are in the world. Phone banks, text banks, ways to give money. They've got it all covered. So look, this is not one of those situations where we just fall back and wait and see what happens. Oh no, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity where we make it happen. Y'all, this runoff will put our country and our community on a specific trajectory for the next four years. Now, I know which way I want it to go, but what about you? For Revolt Black News, I'm Ebony K. Williams. See you next time.